Greetings, dear listeners. This is Jonah Goldberg of the Remnant Podcast, which is brought to you by thedispatch.com and Dispatch Media. You can go to thedispatch.com and sign up now. We've actually opened up uh, the um, the normal yearly subscription um, signups. If you want to do that, that would be great for us. It helps us have a more predictable revenue stream for the first year and it's a great vote of confidence and it's a wonderful thing to do during this holiday season and it would make me happy but uh you don't have to do it everything's gonna be free for a while but i just wanted to get that out there so we're actually recording oh and today's episode is brought to you by doordash more about them later so we're recording this episode um on thursday of what to humans of the future will call last week and um we just had the um, constitutional experts testify about impeachment stuff, and um, we wanted to get uh, one of the he's, – he's the – I've called him for years a Vulcan because it's not entirely clear to me that he's a human being because um, he's so smart. Um, and one of my oldest friends in Washington, uh, Ramesh Panuru, former colleague at National Review, still a colleague at the American Enterprise Institute, Bloomberg columnist. Senior editor, National Review, um, and who married up to April Pernuru, who um, we all love. Ramesh, thanks for coming on. Glad to be here. So um, I-, I wanted to get that out there that we're, we're we could be a little dated because over the weekend, you know, on the Sunday shows, Mick Mulvaney or Rudy Giuliani could sort of flip and spill the beans or whatever, but. Um, my or, sense is, or spill the beans without even intending to. That's right. <laughs> or sometimes, you know, refuse to spill the beans at the beginning of a sentence and then spill them at the end of the sentence. Um, but um, I want to just sort of get your – but since for the most part nothing ever changes, polling never changes, people are all locked in, attitudes on impeachment except for a few independents who've slid back against it haven't changed. Um, want to get you sort of your first – your sort of the rank punditry take on where you think – the impeachment stuff is, where do you think it's going, and then we can get into the more qualitative stuff about what should happen and what why it's not going to. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, the debate over impeachment, all of the politics of it, are structured by the key constitutional provision, which is the two-thirds bar for removing a president in the Senate. And so when you assess the arguments and counterarguments from a political point of view, all the Republicans have to do is hold roughly a third of the country. Um, that's And so the arguments may not be particularly good. Um, in, in many cases, they aren't, uh, although they vary. Uh, but they, they don't have to be that good right. in order to fulfill that function. And I think one of the interesting things about the politics of impeachment, though, is that to the extent it reinforces the Republicans – impulse to just hug that base, uh, it gets in the way of a strategy for winning the 2020 election, Mm -hmm. um, which may not be entirely uh, unintended on the part of the Democrats. Yeah. I mean, so sometimes you hear these galaxy brain theories about what the Democrats are really up to and that it's uh, an attempt to sort of to Benghazi Trump to sort of soften him up, but not actually seek impeachment that it's uh that the impeachment push is just a way to sort of 
de facto censure him and, and weaken him. Um, but if you actually talk to actual Democrats, they actually really want to impeach him, right? I mean, that's the sort of like in, in we both remember 1998 with Bill Clinton, 1999. There was a lot of game theory about what Republicans were really trying to do. And then you actually talk to actual Republicans and no, no, they just they really want to impeach right. him. Um, where do you come down on the, the, the strategy here? Well, I, I think the Democrats would like to remove him if they could. Uh, I think they are all pretty much well aware that that is not going to happen. Uh, but they want to go on record. Uh, they do want to weaken him for the 2020 election. My argument has always been on the on just again this narrow political point that. Uh, if you want to run against Trump in important part on the ground that he is a corrupt abuser of power and you control the House of Representatives, you sort of have to impeach him. Right. Right. I mean, it's not as though the Democrats were ever going to run a campaign that was like the, the Clinton campaign against George H.W. Bush in 1992, where you would just say, well, maybe he's well-meaning, but he's he's a failure and he's he's out of touch. It was going to be a much more harder-edged campaign, um, and so I mean, I think I think you can't be in a position where Trump could say, "Well, you know, Joe Biden, if anybody really believed the things you're saying about me, your your friends in the House would have impeached me," and they didn't because everybody knows this is just political rhetoric. So I do think they have to they they have to follow through on this. But they are clearly still half-hearted about it. Nancy Pelosi's caution, her resistance to doing this still, I think, shows through in the kind of timeline that they've adopted. And I think um, uh, some Republicans, including the Republican witness on the constitutional hearing, Jonathan Turley, were right in saying, you know, if this is really serious, then why aren't you taking more time to get more witnesses and and really do more investigation and deliberation? Yeah, I have to say, I thought Turley's argument was, you can quibble with it and, and serious people can disagree with it, but I thought it was pretty persuasive that if this really is a serious impeachment, the idea that you're not going to exhaust all of your um, opportunities and resources and, and avenues in terms of getting the right witnesses in and all of that kind of stuff um, is a mistake. It's just a mistake for guarantee for 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 get, getting public support and, and all of the rest. Um, do you th- – but I guess the part of the problem I have with it is that at the end of the day – it's just a really fancy, very good process argument, right? It's not a evidentiary argument. It's not a he didn't do it argument. It's it's these this process is mean, and therefore we shouldn't impeach him. Well, it's also a, a process argument that cannot be made with a straight face by the administration. Because the administration's view is not that we need a more extensive investigation. Right. Uh, it's that this is a distraction from the important business of doing whatever it is that the Congress is supposed to be doing uh, besides investigating the president. Yeah. So, I mean, I, I, I really want to get our colleague or friend Andy McCarthy in here when next time he's in Washington because you're the wrong person to grill about this. But this argument that the process has been unfair and that the Republicans weren't allowed to call witnesses, 
Are you aware of any witnesses that they wanted to call in these closed hearings that were actually exculpatory witnesses? Or wasn't the whole point that they want to bring in Hunter Biden and Joe Biden and that kind of stuff? That's not that's not contradicting the facts as alleged against Trump. That's just trying to fuel the same narrative that he's trying to get Ukraine to fuel. Or am I missing something? No, I I, I think that's right. I, I, I keep being reminded of something a Republican strategist told me um, during the Clinton impeachment. Uh, when we were both much younger, that uh, speak for yourself. Th- that the uh, uh, he said, you know, the, the Democratic strategy against impeachment was to um, put on uh, uh, red noses and big floppy shoes, and then uh, complain it was a circus. Right, and that's really what the House Republicans have been doing. Um. So, do you think that there's anything foreseeable? That changes the trajectory of this? Do you think, you know, um, you're hearing more and more talk about how maybe they just don't don't even impeach and go to censure? Um, Do you think that's possible? Do you think that's a smarter play? I think it would be an enormous uh, political problem for the Democrats to go to censure uh, instead of impeachment. Um, I think... Because? uh, I think that it's just such a climb down on their part. If you look at the 2018 exit polls, three quarters of people who voted for the Democrats were for impeachment already. This was before anybody was talking about uh, Ukraine. And uh, so to go through all of this and then pull up short, I I think would be um, a mistake politically, especially since impeachment without uh, conviction in the Senate functions pretty much as a censure, as yeah. as the president has reportedly said. It's a black mark on the resume. Uh, and I'm not really sure what you gain. You do – I do hear people say – you know, I, he- I hear a lot of Republicans say, well, gosh, why are they putting the country through this? Like putting the country through what? Yeah. I mean was, was 1999 – um, such a terrible year in American history because there was an impeachment and then a, a quick Senate trial that didn't yeah. lead to conviction. Um, but isn't couldn't you make the case that if Nancy Pelosi could pull it off, and I agree that's a big if, that a censure vote is a much harder vote for Republican senators, right, than an impeachment vote? Um, a censure vote is much harder vote for Republican House members too, right? I mean. Because a lot of these people would like to say, I don't like what President Trump did, but it's not impeachable. And the impeachment vote allows them to vote with the president. The censure vote creates a problem where they might have to vote against the president. Um, Or do I have that wrong? I imagine that Republicans would find a way to wiggle out of uh, (laughs) any such uh, challenge. So, you know. Well, of course, I, I don't approve of everything that the president has said or done, but a censure is a really extraordinary move. You know, yeah. you, can, you can hear what they would say. So on, on the substance stuff. There's no constitutional provision for a censure, right, which is actually true. Which I mean, is true, yeah. You know. um, um, so one of the arguments you hear, which I actually think is, is kind of a good one, is that the um, what the founders meant by bribery – was very, you know, so what you do is you get this, you hear Democrats say, look, what President Trump did fits the exact definition of bribery in the federal statutes. And I think they make a good case there. 
The problem is, is that there were no federal statutes against bribery when the Constitution was written. There were only like there were only like three crimes in the Constitution, right? And originally, every all criminal law was supposed to be at the state level. So what they meant by bribery was much more grandiose than what the now federal code says. Do you think that the bribery of the federal code is commensurate to the bribery clause in the Constitution? I don't. But I also think that bribery is an odd way of looking at this because um, I mean, typically when we think about bribery, um, you know, you're 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 bribing a cop to not enforce the law or something, right. something like that. You know, bribing the president of Ukraine is a different kind thing. of thing. I mean, we don't. In a certain sense, we don't care about the integrity of Ukrainian law. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's perfectly acceptable for us, for the U.S. government to bribe in the sense of offering inducements, positive and negative, to get a foreign government to do something that's actually in the national interest. The problem here isn't really the bribery. The problem is what the Ukrainian government is being asked to do in exchange for the bribe. Um, so I think it, it fits more comfortably into the category of kind of an abuse of power that mm. is a high crime and misdemeanor. But in general, I just think it is a huge mistake to try to think of impeachable offenses in terms of statutory crimes. Mm-hmm. That is the, the, the legalization of the impeachment process, which just pervades the debate over it uh, in all kinds of unhelpful ways. So where I mean, just a big picture. We're and we're going to and for listeners who are sick of all of this, we're going to move off of this shortly. But um, just big picture, where do you come down on the questions? Was it an impeachable crime? Do you think he did it? And if you think he did it and it's impeachable, do you think uh, he should be impeached? Because those are three separate questions. And then fourth, should he be removed? <laughs> okay, so. Um... I think that the evidence is uh, is quite strong that he conditioned um, official acts of the U.S. government on uh, the Ukrainian government taking steps to help him or that he perceived would help him and um, that is an abuse of power. Um, whether it's an impeachable offense, you know – the, the thing that gets fuzzy here is um, uh, there is an element of political judgment that is required in reaching that conclusion. Um, so there is a sub- subjectivity to it. That's why people want to jump to, well, is it a statutory right. offense because you can you can make it more objective. But I think in the nature of things, it just can't be that objective. Um, I think it is in in the right ballpark. So uh, a, pre- a Congress that found this kind of thing worthy of impeachment um, would be within its rights. The question would be sort of is it serious enough? Is it grave enough? Uh, and then given the totality of political circumstances, um, is this the right thing to do? Uh, I think the most powerful argument – against impeachment is the fact that you've got this impending election coming up. Uh, and so um, if, a, if, if, if people find this unacceptable behavior in a president, um, they can take action that way. Uh, but uh, I think if I, – I think that I would be very likely if I were in the House to vote to impeach 
And in the Senate, I would be deliberating long and hard, but I would be seriously considering removal. Yeah. So the but old, I haven't won my primary yet, so. There. <laughs> um, and besides, we're grooming you for Supreme Court. But uh, um, Oh, the Fed, yeah. Yeah, I need, to, I need to look into this question of whether one can simultaneously serve on the Fed. Dual appointment on the Fed and yeah. the Supreme Court? That'd be awesome. Um, everyone would return your phone calls. <laughs> um, so, but I'm, I, I hear you. The only problem I have, not the only problem, but is that if it would be more cut and dried if he were pressuring the Ukraine, Ukrainians to build a Trump hotel in Kiev, right? Or Kiev, as we're supposed to say, um, uh, I think more people would recognize that as a sort of a, an abuse of power if he was like you saying, you don't get military aid unless you build my hotel. Um, at the same time, I'd be more inclined to argue that that's a better case to leave to the voters. But what he was trying to do was actually influence his political chance, you know, the election. I mean, people use meddling with the election a little too glibly, but what he was trying to do was increase his chances of getting reelected by doing something slimy with Biden. I actually think that the crowd strike stuff is more disturbing than the Biden stuff. But the the so saying leaving it to the the problem with saying leave it to the voters just on the merits is that the whole crime alleged is that he was trying to play games with the voters. Right. He was trying to he was trying to muck up the election and put his thumb on the scale of election. So when you say leave it to the voters, if you can't punish that then that sort of gets at the heart of why we have an impeachment, you know, provision in the first place. My understanding is, you know, it's not clear to me that Madison would have wanted an impeachment clause if he knew we were going to have presidential term limits, right? The whole idea was to keep a president from abusing his power to stay in office and all that kind of stuff and turning into a tyrant. If you have an election, that's a safeguard against that. But if he's committing acts to to skew the election in his favor, then... It's, that that argues more for impeachment rather than less to me than it's some other crime. So the, the reason I reject that argument is I think it doesn't take into account the political context of impeachment versus an election. Um, so uh, to beat President Trump in an election requires much less of a public consensus against him mm -hmm. than his impeachment and removal. Mm -hmm. um, to impeach and remove him, you would need something in the ballpark of two-thirds of the public right. being against him. If you have that degree of public consensus, he is not anywhere – he doesn't have the power to manipulate his way into re-election. Um, and so, so the bar – the bar is just so much lower to defeat him in an election um, that it's there's sort of not an either or choice mm -hmm. here. Okay. What I do think is a better argument for um, impeachment over an election is that impeachment and removal um, you get you would get rid of uh, the potential abuser of power. But you don't have a total change in the ideological orientation of the president, right? You right. replace him with another Republican president, whereas an election, you're forced to make this choice between somebody who's an abuser of power but maybe is better on a wide range of issues than the potential replacement. So um, I will force a transition into this. Um, people talk all the time about how this is a coup, right? Most coups don't replace 
the ruler with the ruler's handpicked successor <laughs> in terms of President Pence, right? This wouldn't overturn the election in the case of in the sense of making Hillary Clinton president or anything like that. But it does sort of on the politics side, moving past impeachment, the idea that Mike Pence could replace Donald Trump politically on the right, you know, like the idea, the prospect of watching Mike Pence try to fill a stadium with people wearing MAGA hats and cheering the way they do for Donald Trump strikes me as highly implausible, right? And so that sort of, in my rough, aphasic kind of way, gets us to what the future of the Republican Party is, right? Mike Pence clearly thinks he's the future of the Republican Party, or at least that's what he wakes up every morning trying to convince himself. Um, does the GOP, whether let's assume he's not impeached, let's assume he makes it that he do, whether he's reelected or not, do you how Trumpy do you think the future of the GOP is? Well, I think it depends a lot on whether he loses in 2020 and if he loses, how he loses. Uh -huh. So does he lose by a large margin? Um, does he lose while also having Republicans lose the Kansas Senate seat and, right. and lose control of the Senate and so forth? Um, I think in general, uh, parties are very vicious <laughs> in turning on their losers. Mm. Um, so – you think about the, the reputation, the political reputation of Jimmy Carter and George H.W. Bush. Now, the, those people can be rehabilitated as people. Mm -hmm. Americans are pretty forgiving in that respect. But parties tend to view um, those people of, as having been serious mistakes mm -hmm. in retrospect. Now, of course, Trump's been – has defied the odds in a lot of ways. But, uh, but I think that there are an awful lot of Republicans who have been supporting him – on basically just partisan grounds, uh, and once that um, uh, is no longer something that binds them to him, uh, that he'd, he'd look a lot different in the rearview mirror. Uh, I don't think that the party goes back to its pre-Trump orientation. I think there will be some people in the party who want to carry on as though nothing has changed, but I don't think that that is going to be possible because the party's base has been changing. Um, Trump was responding to a change in the composition of the party and then he accelerated that change. Uh, and so it's a more working class party than it used to be. Um, and I think it's going to have to to reflect that. Uh, and, you know, we, we, we can't – Republican politicians can't sort of unknow things that everybody now knows about what Republican voters are actually like and want yeah. um, so that they're not um, quite as rigidly free market in orientation as pre-2016 Republicans might have thought. Um, so to get this in more concrete terms, I don't think that the Republican Party is necessarily going to go protectionist, but I think it's going to have a larger protectionist wing yeah. than it had before Trump. Can you have – I mean just on the demographics – is it is there any scenario conceivably where you can have the Republicans become a working class party without doing much better with minorities with the, with Hispanics and blacks? Are there enough working class whites if you lose the suburbs um, to be a majority white party without um, while also going at this sort of uh, non college educated working class voters the heart of your coalition? Well, timing is everything. And <laughs> Nixon could do it. Uh, you know, it's um, 
right after the 2012 election, there were all these people who were saying things, all these Republican strategists, um, you know, many of them pro the Republican National Committee's autopsy, were saying things like, you know, Republicans have to get 40 percent of the non-white vote. Uh, no, this is not true, um, as it turned out. Um, but over the long run, um, given the change in the racial demography of the country, uh, no, there there aren't enough white working class voters. It is true, right? I mean, the, the, the whole idea that the Democrats had that there's this coalition of the ascendant um, and that they were doing strong among groups that are rising as a share of the American electorate, that's true. It's just, you know, they were sort of counting on that happening faster than it did. Mm-hmm. Um, I think of uh, uh, the Clinton 2016 strategy a little bit like um, – uh, like the old adage that there's there's no um, reward for being prematurely right in the stock market, right? And um, uh, so you and so I think you could um, have a 2020 result where you do a little bit better even among white working class voters um, than last time, and uh, and that's enough, mm-hmm. uh, particularly given the distribution of those voters. But does that carry you through to having you know winning? Uh, a majority of the 2024, 2028, 2032 elections? Probably not. Yeah. Um, so where do you come – so this is something we've talked about a lot off microphone. The the general argument you get, the, the sort of mirror image argument, it, it, it's, it's weird. You know, I've had these confrontations with these alt-right kids a couple times in the last month and – there's a remarkable amount of analytical consensus between the sort of let's call it the Michelle Malkin crowd mm. and the politics of the ascendant crowd, and that they both believe that um, we're importing democratic voters, that there is something congenital to being a minority that um, makes you vote Democrat for all time, and um, and that if they keep voting Democrat, that means it's the it's the end. Of, well, it's actually they both sides believe it's the end of America. Just one laments it and the other one doesn't. Um, uh, where do you come down on all of that? Where, where is how? I, I don't. You know, I've always been a bit squishier at national. Well, I was always a bit squishier at National Review on the immigration stuff than you. And then our editorial line was, but um, I never thought that there was anything inherently racist or evil about trying to impose a rational immigration policy and enforcing it. And we were called that often. It was called nativist and racist for wanting to do that, including by many people who are now very ardent Trump supporters. Um, But um, how how do you score the level of concern one should have about that as a conservative, about the, the demographic arguments about whether it's the Democratic version of them, the sort of Rudy Teixeira version of them, or the sort of uh, Steve King version of them. So, um, look, I mean, it's just the case that immigrants skew more Democratic in their voting than native-born Americans. Uh, And political parties pay attention to that kind of thing. The Democrats certainly do. Uh, I don't think there's anything in principle wrong um, with the Republicans doing that. I do think it would be a mistake for Republicans um, to write off immigrants completely because there's a difference between, you know, getting – 
35 percent of a, of a group's vote and getting 15 or 20 percent right. of a group's vote. I mean, it, that's sort of part of, to get back to what I was saying about Hillary Clinton, part of what the problem was, was the way they basically wrote off the white working class vote. If she'd held her losses to Obama levels in the upper Midwest, she'd be president. Right. Um, so, uh, you know, I certainly don't think in any kind of – I don't believe in any kind of like biological predilection to vote for Democrats or Republicans, which is obviously, you know, counterindicated by the fact that groups change their political alignments over time. I do think that um, assimilation is, uh, is, is likely to weaken a group's sense that it needs to be with the Democratic Party. Uh, and that uh, a different immigration policy would better promote assimilation. Um, so the main reason I want a more assimilative immigration policy is because I think social cohesion, uh, a shared sense of belonging on the part of the country is a good thing. But I do think it would probably have um, some uh, some long-term benefits for Republicans as well. Yeah. Um, but this – but you've got to find a way to promote that sort of thing without communicating the idea that you hate immigrants. Right. People people are oddly averse to voting for people <laughs> they think hate them. Um, but there's also this this notion out there that um, that the racial categories that we have today or the ethnic categories, whatever you want to put it, are locked in and eternal, right? I mean, um, if you go back and you look at how many Italians were not not only did not consider themselves white, but were not considered white. Um, white as a category was several ticks below where it is, to, where people think it is today. I mean, the, very few wasps in the sort of Brahmin establishment, right, particularly cared that you were white if you were Irish or if you were Italian or something like that. Um, and you have lots of non you have lots of Hispanics who call themselves white. You have lots of Asians who may not call themselves white, but culturally assimilate fairly white. Do you think that the political valence of 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 whiteness is um, as baked into the cake on from either side of the analysis? No, I mean I, I do think that that is. I mean, you're one of the whitest people I know. <laughs> uh, 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 thank you. I don't know. <laughs> Uh, okay. Um, but I handle spicier food better than you do. <laughs> yeah. Uh, this is, uh, I was just, I was at an Indian restaurant the other day and they, they obviously made assumptions about me and <laughs> made the food spicier than I wanted. And it was, I think it's just like textbook microaggression on the, the part of fellow Indian Americans. But anyway, leaving that aside, all of these projections about when the U.S. becomes majority minority right. in the 2040s or 2050, the, the precise estimate shifts uh, over time, they presuppose that mixed race uh, people won't consider themselves white, right. that Hispanics won't consider themselves white. And uh, you know, m maybe that will be true. Um, it may be that in modern America, um, identifying as as white it has less social cachet, despite your best mm -hmm. efforts, um, <laughs> than it used to have. Uh, but uh, but we don't know that. I think that is very much an open question. Yeah, I mean, it just I just as someone who grew up in New York City, the idea of Finding a great source of meaning and identity and whiteness always struck me as kind of weird. You know, well, as a white person, I think you know, I just never began a sentence that way. Uh, but since you brought up Indian, well, I guess I brought up Indian food. Um, were you particularly offended by Tom Nichols's attack on uh, 
on Indian food? Did you see this on Twitter? It caused a great deal of outrage. I, I did see this. I, I, it is uh, from time to time he puts out a tweet that makes me question his judgment. <laughs> but that uh, wasn't one of them. <laughs> uh, and, uh, and his judgment about Indian food is just obviously and objectively mistaken. Yeah. I mean there are some people who say that there's no disputing taste. But this is wrong. Yeah. He, his, 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 his taste is wrong. Yeah. Uh, but um, there's also an enormous diversity of Indian food. I mean, people there are more languages in India than there are in Europe, right? And there are more cuisines, probably too. Yeah, but I think I think um, I, I think it's okay to have an, an uh, to, to to assume that he was meaning sort of the kind of Indian food you get in America. Yeah, sure, sure, right? And that's good um, stuff. I love. Yeah, it. yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, and of course, you know, and there is a there is more of a sameness to uh, to. Those restaurants, yeah, than there is to the actual cuisine of India, um, but uh, yeah, he's got his he's got his weird taste. That's fine. I would not have. Uh, I mean, we can all agree that Ethiopian food is awful, right? No. Anyway, I don't want to get you in trouble there. Um, uh, there goes all of the Ethiopian sponsors of this. Yeah, great podcast. Um, Hope you realize what you've done. Just so you know, I don't know if I told you this. You know, my daughter last summer did this special tour thing in India and Nepal. And she came back and I was like, so Lucy, what is your, um, what's like your one big takeaway after seeing all this? And she told us all these stories about poverty and traffic and hiking in the Himalayas, all these great things. And I said, what's, what's the one big takeaway? And she said, it's going to be a long time before I go back to India voluntarily. (laughs) (laughs) Um, uh, but I, just to be clear, I really love Indian food, and one of the reasons why I love DoorDash is I can get Indian food from a lot of different places. So that's a good reason to talk to you about DoorDash. Crushing it at work? Laser-focused on beating that boss level? That doesn't mean you shouldn't eat. DoorDash can help you get your next meal from your favorite restaurant in minutes. Because DoorDash connects you to all of your favorite restaurants in your city. Ordering is easy. Open the DoorDash app, choose what you want to eat, and your food will be delivered to you wherever you are. Not only is your favorite pizza joint already on DoorDash, but there are over 340,000 restaurants in 3,300 cities. So you might find a new favorite, too. With door-to-door delivery in all 50 states and Canada, order from your local go-tos or choose from your favorite national restaurants like Chipotle, Wendy's, Chick-fil-A, and the Cheesecake Factory. Don't worry about dinner. Let dinner come to you with DoorDash. So right now, our listeners can get $5 off their first order of $15 or more when you download the DoorDash app and enter promo code REMNANT. That's $5 off your first order when you download the DoorDash app from the App Store and enter promo code Remnant, not dingo, but remnant, R-E-M-N-A-N-T. Don't forget, that's promo code remnant for $5 off your first order from DoorDash. Okay, so let's, let's uh, since I mentioned DoorDash, one of the things that companies like DoorDash and Uber and all these kind of places do is they are disruptive to sort of uh, the, the, the incumbents in a given market. And... This is something that a lot of conservatives all of a sudden have decided is very bad. The creative destruction is bad, that um, the the Schumpeterian gale of capitalism 
um, needs to be fortified against. And we've seen a bunch of different versions of this attempt now. Uh, the what do we call it? the Amariites, um, the Amerians, the there's Rubio with Rubionomics, um, and there's Josh Hawley with his stuff. And there's our old friend Tucker Carlson, who's saying, I would argue, a lot of economically ridiculous things these days. Um, first of all, what's your general take on it? Do you think that there are some versions of it that are better than others? And if so, why? And is this sort of uh, economic planning of the right, the future of the GOP? So uh, I am I'm less hostile to, um, say, Senator Rubio's uh-huh. speech on uh, what he calls common good capitalism than, uh, than a lot of uh, my free market friends. Uh, I've got an article coming out in the next National Review on this. I sent to you for – Comment. I know, but I, I'm sorry. I apologize. So it is. It is now. It's devoid of your insight and wisdom. Yeah. I'm afraid. Um, so uh, I think that that some of the questions are the right questions. So um, government does exist to pursue the common good, right? To pursue goods that we cannot achieve uh, on our own, or even in coordination with other people in groups that are smaller than the state. Um, now, how we do that is a different question, uh, and I think that uh, – and I'm just going to stick with Senator Rubio because having read him the last couple of days, I'm, I'm more familiar with where he's coming from. So he doesn't – there's a lot of things he doesn't explicitly say mm-hmm. in the speech, but that if you, if you put a lot of attention on what he's focusing on the speech, you'll make some assumptions. So for example – is it true that markets um, can sometimes and should sometimes be limited uh, for the or shaped mm-hmm. uh, to pursue the common good? I think that's absolutely correct. Um, is it true that um, a central problem or the central problem of our society is that we haven't shaped the market enough uh, and that we've allowed the market to run wild? I think that is a much, much more dubious proposition. Now, he never says that, right? He never says um, that that's the fundamental problem. And maybe that's because he's just trying to get conservatives to reexamine something they take for granted as opposed to just echoing the stuff that he agrees with all conservatives on. But I think it was a mistake. It was a rhetorical mistake because there's plenty of places where um, what we have is precisely a failure to allow markets to thrive and um, and to fulfill their potential. I mean, I think, I think some of the great problems we have uh, with our economy have to do with the overregulation of housing markets. It's not unfettered and, capitalism. It's right, fettered capitalism. It's deeply fettered well. capitalism, yeah. right? Or with the... Um, uh, or with a higher education system in this country that is largely shaped by government policies and particularly by federal policies. Now, at some level, Rubio knows this because he's introduced a lot of good legislation right. on a lot of these subjects. Um, but you would not get a sense from listening to a speech that uh, that that we live in something other than a night watchman state. Mm-hmm. But what does it say about the GOP these days that? I am. I am no Luke Thompson. I'm no comfortably smug. I am not a Rubio basher. I actually like Rubio, but one can say without fear of instant contradiction that Rubio has very sensitive political antenna, and that he likes to get out in front of ideas in ways that lots of politicians do. But he's just 
he hides it worse than some do. What does it say that Rubio is sort of following in the footsteps of Hawley in this, um, you know, this new fetishization of the state knowing how to jigger the knobs of the economy in ways um, that promote the common good? So I take a, a little bit of a broader historical view of this and just say every major attempt uh, at redefining conservatism or the Republican Party for a very long time has involved softening the edges of its support for free market capitalism. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think arguably you could even look at Ronald Reagan as an example of this, who runs in 1980 very pointedly not being the second coming of Goldwater, but being somebody who has sort of Goldwaterite instincts, but also says, I'm not going to threaten your Medicare and Social Security. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, George H.W. Bush, I'm going to be kinder and gentler. More will than wallet. George W. Uh-huh. Bush, compassionate conservatism. Um, so I think that there there has long been a sense among um, – Republican politicians that the weak point of the Republican Party platform was its economic agenda. And I think mm-hmm. that's right. Um, now, the question is sort of, you know, given that, I think, true point, so what do you do about it? How do you adjust the Republican message? Um, and I think that uh, Rubio is right in thinking that the party needs to be a little less abstract, a little less dogmatic, and um, particularly given the change in the composition of the party, uh, a little more um, oriented toward helping working class voters. Um, Now, that doesn't – I think it shouldn't mean that we just become big government liberals um, or just sort of embrace state planning and forget everything we've always known about the limits of what government can do and the ways government intervention can go wrong. Um, and some of it should mean um, that we just have different kinds of a free market agenda. As I was, I was saying, I think there's a lot of things that we could be doing. Uh, to throw in another one, getting back at the, the proliferation of occupational licensing, mm-hmm. uh, which I think has become a real problem, a real obstacle to opportunity. Um, so maybe you, you change the agenda. Uh, but um, but I think that uh, to put maybe the best construction on it, the, the election of Trump was an enormously disorienting event uh, for a lot of conservatives. And I think a lot of people are trying to sort of think through or feel through um, what a post con- post-Trump conservatism should look like. I thought sort of the funniest line in Rubio's speech is when he he sort of piously disavows any thought of trying to define a post-Trump conservatism. That's not on his mind. Well, obviously, <laughs> obviously that is among his goals. Okay, so I'm going to put you back on your reformicon heels a little bit here. I'm totally with you. Let's get let's major free market reform of occupational licensing. I, I'm more and more interested in how zoning is screwing things up at the local level, and it's really important that one of the unanticipated consequences of fixing, to a large extent, the crime problem has basically priced out cheap labor from cities, which is a huge problem for poor people and a huge problem for cities, you know, for cost of living. Um, so I'm, I'm with you on all the free market ways of, of jiggering with some of that stuff. What are the non-free market things that you're in favor of, like you would say, are, you know, that, that run against deregulatory the, the sort of deregulatory because you keep you, you say that these politicians are right about the political prospect about the economic message of conservatism uh 
Is that economic message, in fact, wrong, or is it just a bad political issue? Like, where do you come down where you side more on the Holly, Rubio, um, you know, uh, I won't say Rusty Reno, but, you know, on the sort of the the triangulating against on the merits against unfettered capitalism? Uh, well, I'm a, I'm a pretty pro-capitalist guy, um, but I think that there's been a way of thinking about what a free market reformist agenda would be, uh-huh. right? Um, and so I would say both politically and substantively an agenda that is just about cutting the top tax rate and entitlement reform and free trade, all of which I think are good ideas. Mm-hmm. That's not enough. That's not a sufficient basis for uh, successful conservative politics. And it's it's not enough for promoting the common good. Um, now, as, as you know, I have been a strong uh, proponent of uh, pro-family tax reform, the idea that parents uh, and particular parents of large families – um, should get tax relief. Mm-hmm. Now, I think that is entirely compatible with a free market and even a libertarian um, way of thinking about government, but it doesn't seem to be a natural way mm-hmm. so of uh, of thinking for a lot of people who think of themselves as free marketeers and libertarians. So, you know, in December of 2017, there was a vote. Um, should we cut the corporate tax rate a little bit less in order to expand the child credit a little bit more. And Rubio said, you know, Rubio sponsored that idea. And Hawley was not in the Senate yet, but he was in favor of that idea. And I was very strongly in favor of that idea. The Wall Street Journal editorial board acted as though, um, you know, this was some sort of dark ages plot to destroy capitalism. Mm -hmm. Um, And so, you know, I don't know whether – so I wouldn't say that I think that we should move away from free market capitalism. Uh, I do think that there is a kind of rigid and dogmatic way of thinking about it that we have to move away from. That, that, that I, is a very politic answer and I agree with it entirely. Well, um, I, I think it's true. Yeah, no, it has, and, it has, and it has the benefit of being true. Um, OK, so some, we don't have to get deep on the weeds in this but I do find it fascinating. Um you are for a common good capitalism, rightly defined, whatever, promoting the common good, and blah, 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 and that um, the market, the, the the politics of unfettered capitalism are bad, so we need to find productive ways to use market principles towards productive ends, yada, yada, yada. And yet you are for drug legalization. <laughs> <laughs> How do you square these things? Um, so I think that in particular uh, – the federal war on drugs uh-huh. and uh, a maximal federal posture on marijuana is um, is just hard to defend. And I don't think of it um, on sort of libertarian fight for your right to party grounds. Uh-huh. I, I think of it just in terms of uh, the consequences and the costs of this. Uh, and, you know, if you think about the, the origins of the war on drugs and the rhetoric around it, the idea that, um, you know, we need a drug-free America, well, that's a utopian goal, right? Mm-hmm. That's not the, the basis on which we support all kinds of laws, like laws against homicide. It's not we need a homicide-free America, right? I mean, that's, you know, that's just that, that all by itself should tell you that something is going wrong mm-hmm. with the way we are thinking about this question. Um, no, but I, I'm not for 
legalizing heroin, for mm-hmm. example. And on the marijuana case, my views on this have have changed over the years. I do think when you th- if you think about the strongest points in the legalizer case in terms of um, you know ha- running the risk of of harassing or even imprisoning people. Um, and uh, changing the priorities of law enforcement in bad ways and and creating um, black markets and so on and so forth um, and all the crime that's attendant on that. I think that it, all of that is a reason for legalizing the um, possession and sale and consumption of marijuana. It's not, I think, a great reason for legalizing um, the for-profit uh, uh, sale of it, mm-hmm. um, and uh, I think you probably and Mark, the late Mark Kleinman, I think, um, was pretty persuasive on the idea that you could have a legalization that was not a kind of uh, a commercial kind of wild west where we're going to try to get as many people um, hooked on the highest potency stuff that we possibly can. So, so it's a so my view on it is a practical kind of you know like what actually does promote the common good here, and but. My recollection is that the the editorial position of National Review uh, was against the drug drug war too sweet, right? I mean, it was the whole thing. The war on drugs has failed. Was uh, Bill Buckley's cover editorial back in '96? Right, and that included heroin, right? That included cocaine. That included all sorts of fun. But things. Bill was not especially. Um, I mean, Bill Bill said the federal war on drugs should end. Uh-huh. He didn't really say what should replace it. And over the years, um, under Buckley's influence, so to speak, um, <laughs> the the magazine experimented with all kinds of things. I just uh-huh. keep relapsing yeah. into this drug talk. Uh, where, you know, I think we ran a, a story on sort of let's have a federal drugstore, which actually makes a lot of sense because if you want something to be overpriced and undersupplied deliberately, right. make it a federal monopoly. Um but, uh, yeah, I mean, I think the idea was I, – I I don't know whether he would have said um, all drugs everywhere, you know, should be legal at every level of government. He was, was no Charlie Cook, right? Right. Because Charlie yeah. actually does – I'm sure it. Charlie would take that. Yeah, 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 which I think is And why should there nuts. be – you know, why shouldn't all medicine be over the counter? Right, so. yeah. I'm, I'm, um, I'm, I'm content with the fact that I, I lost my preferences on the weed thing. I was always for decriminalization. I would have really liked it if Colorado was the only state to do that for like 10 years and we could do lots of data gathering and look at it and see how it went. This mad rush everywhere across the country to legalize it everywhere, I think it was a mistake, but it's not the end of the world. But legalizing heroin seems like a very bad idea to me. Um, and I remember asking early on in my tenure at National Review, I remember asking you and Rich and a bunch of people what the editorial position – if what the editorial position of the – magazine would be on the war on drugs if the war on drugs worked and i can never get a completely clear answer on that one um but anyway i just think it's funny that there's we know charlie's view what charlie's view would be on this yes no we do we do and but there's just this 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 thing about the common good capitalism stuff seems to me at odds with um the idea of legalizing drugs right i mean if you if you think that that there's a place for the state to sort of intervene for the common good, then 
Yeah, it's 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 incompatible with the the sort of the pure libertarian case right. for legalizing drugs, but it's not incompatible with the conservative case for legalizing drugs. That has to do with you know sort of the limits of what government can achieve, as opposed to the the unbounded rights of the individual to do anything he wants. Yeah. So I mean, I, I know you 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 exempted Rubio from actually saying unfettered capitalism is the problem, but it does seem like our friend and now colleague uh, J D Vance and some other people and. You know, and Tucker makes this case. There is this claim out there, which I think is just a flat out straw man, that Washington has been run by libertarians for the last 30 years, that um, all we do is deregulate the economy and that's where all our problems come from. Um, Tucker. They're using libertarian in the loose sense to include Bill Clinton. Right. <laughs> um, but I mean, it's just. Um, uh, there are lots of ways you can use Bill Clinton in the loose sense. But. Um, um, but for an entire sort of claim of, of repudiation of the what you know, dead consensus or the old conservative project, um, for it to depend so glaringly and heavily on a straw man of this idea that all we've been doing is pursuing free market policies, free market in the culture, free market in the, in the economy for the last 30 years, I think is a real tell about how weak their actual case is. That combined with the really glaring lack of specifics that you often get from from all of these guys. But I guess I'm coming back to the question I had at the beginning is, what does it say about conservatism? Forget the politicians, right? Because they'll go where, as you point out, they go where they think the votes are. A bunch of guys from Claremont and, and some other places just came out with a new open letter or manifesto. They seem to be coming out every week. And Rusty Reno seems to be signing all of them, calling for a new tech, a, a tech new deal. And I think it's really kind of interesting that, uh, you know, James Polos and the American Mind people and the, and the president of Claremont Institute signed it. The Claremont Review of Books has been playing, has been using the New Deal as a pinata for its entire existence, right? Just the whole concept of it, the, the actual manifestation of it it's, as a historical epoch, it, it's, its role as a continuation of Wilsonianism. And I know this in part because... I wrote a lot of those pieces for the Claremont Review of Books, and I reviewed the giant phone book size compendium of the 10 or 15-year anniversary of the Claremont Review of Books. And now they're using New Deal as a stand-in for a good thing, which I just think is interesting. Regardless of where they come down on the actual tech stuff, there does seem to be, from Hazoni and all these others, a move on the right towards this idea of that left-wing statism is bad, but right-wing statism might have something going for it. Should I be more concerned about this or less concerned about this? You seem remarkably unconcerned about it to me. Well, uh, no, I, I wouldn't. I wouldn't say I'm. I'm unconcerned. Maybe I'm not as concerned as you are. Um, I think that um, some of these ideas are sort of inchoate, if that's the right way to pronounce that. I've never known. Yeah. Uh, and uh, and and need to be sort of developed and channeled. Um, a little bit. I do think, uh, for example, the, the the people who are drawing on Catholic social teaching um, should be more mindful uh, <laughs> uh, of the fact that Catholic social teaching includes um, subsidiarity mm-hmm. uh, in, as a strong principle, really, that, uh, that, that it is wrong to entrust something that can be entrusted to a lower level of social organization to a higher one. Um, and that uh, you know, property rights are real doesn't mean they can't ever be limited, but they also have to be respected. Um, and you don't you, d- you don't hear those notes 
sounded. Um, you don't you don't have as much acknowledgement as I think you should that that markets are a kind of cultural achievement um, that that serves the common good. Mm-hmm. Um, so. Uh, you know, I, I, I've shied away from critique of sort of this kind of general complex of ideas because it is so general mm. and and try to s- stick to specific things um, that people have said. And in a lot of cases, they, they, don't, don't, they don't say enough uh, <laughs> for you to issue that critique. All right. So uh, some just last rank punditry now. Who's going to be the Democratic nominee and why? Uh Having failed to predict the 2016 election on the day of the 2016 election, <laughs> I am uh, uh, I'm a little leery of making such forecasts. I have, however, throughout this process, been more bullish about Joe Biden's chances yeah, um, than a lot of other people. Uh, I think he's his his flaws are obvious as a candidate, but I think that they have been exaggerated by <clears throat> the uh, the woke left mm-hmm. uh, and by <clears> – <throat> in particular by the social media left um, that, you know, the, 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 the sort of young, woke, identity politics-focused left is just wildly overrepresented, especially on Twitter, in a way that distorts the way democratic political strategists – and mainstream journalists think about these things. I think it's one of the things that led to the Kamala Harris campaign's failure was mm-hmm. that they misidentified where the voters were. It turns out that um, the Democrat social media problems are bigger than Russians on Facebook. And so I would, at the moment, I'd still I'd take the field over Biden, but I'd take Biden over any other person in the field. And if it's a Biden-Trump matchup? Well, tell me how the economy is doing in uh, the spring uh, and early summer of Mm -hmm. 2020. Um, But I would think that Biden wins. Yeah. And if it's a war. And and by the way, I do think regardless of who the Democratic nominee is, whoever, uh, whichever party wins the presidency will win the Senate as well. Mark it down. Ramesh Paniru, thank you so much for being here. Always a pleasure. Uh, Sorry it's been a while. And hope to have you back on soon. Always fun. Okay, so Ramesh has left the building. Um, uh, Hopefully, since I'm talking to you from the past, uh, hopefully not too much dramatic has changed to render all of this moot. You know, if we were all huddling by garbage can fires, eating rats... By Tuesday, this podcast probably won't go out anyway. Um, we'll have other priorities. Um, Jack, did anything vex you about this? Or So you listened to the Nick Gillespie thing, right? The greatest crossover event since some other crossover event? Yep. Um, um, any peeves, grievances, corrections? I've been killing myself. I've been muttering to myself for three days now. Herculoids, Herculoids, because I couldn't remember the name of the Hanna-Barbera cartoon with the Herculoids in it. But other than that. Congratulations. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, so for all I know, by the time this airs, the story will have developed more. But this this weird attack by, you know, my friend Tucker Carlson on Ben Sass. You know it's serious when they call them f- f- my friend. That's right. Um, as I understand it, the, the argument is that Ben Sass is somehow responsible for the fact that 
one sporting good chain bought another sporting good chain and that if Ben Sass cared about the people of Nebraska, he would have prevented one private sector company from merging with another private sector company because that's what senators do. It's weird. It's like one of my big peeves in, I think I talked about this on Glop or something, but one of my big peeves about bad sort of political thriller, international intrigue movies like... um, Paddington? (laughs) <laughs> Paddington, um, uh, Chained Heat. No, like uh, um, that Mark Wahlberg movie Shooter, like the Tom Clancy second season a little bit. Um, the Jack Ryan second season? Jack Ryan, yeah, Jack Ryan second season. The Jason Bourne thing. There are all these like, every now and then there's like these senators who supposedly are running their own off book, you know, uh, black ops operation where they can send American troops into battle to go do coups or whatever. And that like somehow there's like some paperwork that allows the chairman of the foreign relations committee to tell a group of Navy SEALs to go do something. It just doesn't work like that. Now who's being nice. (laughs) It's the same thing with this idea that like in a, a, that one Senator would have, um, that you know would have stopped this thing from happening or that never mind that that he should have and th- this is you know again I, I really like Tucker personally and we go way back but his his approach like what he did at the National Review Institute where you know he says look the you know, the, the market is just a tool like a toaster or whatever um first of all it's not just a tool it is a tool but it's not just a tool um a gun is a tool, but a gun is also the manifestation of your Second Amendment right to protect yourself. A pen is just a tool, but a pen is also one way of, of expressing your First Amendment right. A church is just a tool in the sense that it's just a place where you go to do something, um, but it's also the physical manifestation of uh, your First Amendment right to to worship freely and to assemble freely and all of these various things. The market is just a tool in the sense that it is the what the you say what the Marxists used to call praxis is the point of the meeting of theory and practice in a real way, and markets solve problems as tools, but they are also the manifestation of a fundamental right to pursue happiness as you see it, to purchase things, to use the fruits of your labor as you see fit within very broad constraints, and to relegate markets to the tools suggests that there are people who know how to use these tools better, and that and that Tucker's one of them. And then the problem is, is that whenever Tucker gets pressed on this stuff, well, look, look, I'm not an economist. I'm not a policy wonk, whatever. And it's a very sort of John Stewart kind of thing where he does these sweeping broadsides against the free market right up until someone says, well, what do you want to do instead? And he says, oh, I don't know. That's not my thing. Um, it's funny because uh, John Stewart and Tucker Carlson are such good friends. Yeah, no, there's a certain amount of irony there. Um, and I took very much Tucker's side in the John Stewart, Tucker stuff. I thought I thought Tucker's um you know, one of the things that Tucker had over his um opponents on Crossfire was that unlike James Carville and Paul Begala, Tucker actually said what he personally believed rather than sort of what the party line of the day was. And so I take Tucker at his word that he believes a lot of this stuff, but I, I you know, it's it just strikes me as a lot of demagoguery most of the time because 
the idea that there's, you know, it's, it's, for example, you know, suggests that Ben Sass is bought and paid for by Paul Singer because Paul Singer is his number one donor or number one contributor or something like that, leaving out the fact that I think Paul Singer or Elliott Capital Management or whatever it's called gave $5,400, which was the legal maximum to, maximum to Ben Sass's campaign or something, which has probably Singer tied with, I don't know, 1,000, 10,000, 15,000 other people and institutions that maxed out at $5,400. And the idea that that Ben Sass would have exercised his moral and constitutional principles and stopped this this Bass Pro Shops from merging with Cabela's if only he hadn't been bribed by $5,400. It's just, I can't believe that Tucker actually believes that. And it's anyway, just this kind of stuff, which is so prevalent on the right these days, these sort of, you know, sort of glib guilt by association um, attempts to sort of uh, uh, smear politicians who aren't completely in the party line or to make these arguments that somehow we all know how better to run the economy. It's just that these corrupt forces inside of Washington um, and the, li- the libertarian hegemony in Washington are preventing it from happening. I just find so wildly unpersuasive that it really drives me crazy. Um, and I guess I held it against Ramesh a little too much. Anyway, that's all I've got. Uh, well, Jack, that's there... not all I've got. Okay, hit... uh, there are two remnant-related items that we need to address here. I'll okay. let you pick which one goes first. Uh, we have a late entry to the accent contest. Dear God, okay. And uh, a chance to prove to debate whether you're right about something. Okay, I'll take uh, new accents for two hundred, Alex. Uh, so you may have seen on Twitter that there was demand for Madeline Cairns to submit a voice. I have. I've, I've wanted her on the podcast. Well, she's been on mine. We're friends. I understand that. And uh, I asked her about this, and uh-huh. she was game. Okay. So we've got it right here. And I'm, I'm going to do what we did last time, play it for you as I have it in studio, and then put the real, uh-huh. the better recording in the actual show. Full transparency. So here we go. Make sure this is loud enough. I am quite sure that a man of your intelligence will see that there can be but one outcome to this affair. It is necessary that you should withdraw. You have worked things in such a fashion that we have only one resource left. It has been an intellectual treat to me to see the way in which you have grappled with this matter, but I say, unaffectedly, that it would be a grief for me to be forced to take an extreme measure. Oh, you smile, sir. But it really would be, I do assure you. This is not danger. It is inevitable destruction. You stand in the way not merely of an individual, but of a mighty organisation, the full extent of which even you, with all your cleverness, have been unable to realise. You must stand clear, Mr Holmes, or be trodden underfoot. <laughs> so there we go. What do you think? Um... I don't, I don't, I don't want to be sexist about this, but... That's a great way to start a sentence. It is, isn't it? Um, she sounds less like a supervillain to me and more like a lady I really would not want to cross um, opposing the construction of a highway in Glasgow or something. <laughs> um, she's also just too euphonious. I mean... Um, she is a trained singer. I know. Um 
she's more like the voice that says uh, in heaven, there's no parking in the white zone or something. I mean, there's a weird sort of uh, mellifluous euphony to her voice that I just uh, I'm I'm hard to judge. But I compared to Hannon and and uh, and Ferguson, the nefarious Moriarty thing does not come through as much. Yeah, but remember the original but, but the original point is, is who has the nicest accent. I think yeah. she wins. I mean, I honestly do. But that's just you know, it's it's. Uh, um, maybe it's maybe it's just uh, my fondness for the feminine Scottish accent or something, but I I think it's great. Um, and so that leaves to debating whether you're right. Yeah, but hold on, we should tell listeners if they have no idea what we're talking about here that this was a long-standing thing where we're going to have a competition of various accents, um, of foreign accented or Anglophile accents who have been on the show who have been on the show. And it was at the end of the Andy Smerrick episode. Yeah, yeah, that we ran the entries from Charlie Cook, uh, Daniel Hannon, and uh, Neil Ferguson, and and Sean Connery. And Sean Connery. Uh, so if you want to go listen to that whole episode or just fast forward to the end, you can hear those entries there. Okay. What I, What am I wrong or right about? Uh, so, the remnant, the post National Review remnant, has just crossed the two million listens, two million downloads marker. Outstanding. Uh, and we, back when it crossed 1 million, uh-huh. I think this was in September, uh, yeah, early September, uh-huh. uh, you asked me to predict when it would cross 2 million. Uh-huh. I will in, I'll insert the real audio of this here, but since, uh, and you can listen to that and make sure that I'm not lying to you, but you said the nub of it was that uh, I I said that it would happen sometime before after Thanksgiving before Christmas before yeah before Washington depopulates for Christmas uh-huh. and based on my based on the status quo projection into the future which we said is always uh-huh. dangerous uh-huh. as Orwell writes about in Second Thoughts on James Burnham you said that uh, before you thought it would happen before Thanksgiving. Jack informs me that we've passed a crucial benchmark, right? We, um, the post National Review remnant. Do I have this right, Jack? Passed a million downloads. Yeah, just when I predicted it would happen. This is all. This has all happened before. <laughs> um, all is proceeding as I have foreseen. I know this is uh, doesn't sound all that exciting and all the rest, but it's 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 nice news. You know, the Bulwark. I think they just passed five million downloads, but they have like. They've been around. Don't don't worry about other people. No, I know, I know, I know. Well, I I work. This is like I've burnt my ships. I've done. You know, I've I've made a major commitment to doing this thing. I have to be a something of a cheerleader for this thing that I've you know set a course for the rest of my professional life on. So, I love the bulwark. I listen to it. Um, And uh, but uh, I think that's a great benchmark. Be great. When would you predict our next million download mark? Would our two million download mark was? Mark it down, dude. Um, uh, it'll happen before, well, assuming the status quo, which is always dangerous, as uh, George Orwell once warned us, if if the circumstances of this podcast remained exactly the same, then it would happen, uh, I don't know, a couple weeks before the end of the year. Uh-huh. Um, maybe like just before, before DC depopulates for, for Christmas and whatnot. Yeah, so straight line projections 
into the future as that's the oral reference you're getting at uh-huh. which comes from uh, one of my favorite essays second thoughts on james burnham have their flaws and i have i in modest confidence think that we will hit 2 million downloads by before thanksgiving okay so um, you have more. You have more information. There's an information asymmetry here. There is indeed. There is indeed, and, and that's the way God designed it. Um, anyway, well, it happened on. As best as I can tell, it happened on sometime between November 26th and November 27th. Really? Uh, and that so that would have been either the two days before or the day before Thanksgiving proper. Um, so you could say that you're right, uh-huh, uh-huh. but I think this just goes to prove that George Orwell is actually right, because the margin by which at that point uh, the episode exceeded two million, w- it would have been um, changed if mm-hmm. David French had not been hired, because the episode on which he appeared had a, a it, it, it moved outside of the range of downloads that the normal 500 to a million 500,000 to a million downloads we get (laughs) yeah it was slightly more than that Uh, by enough that if if it had just been like a different guest i understand it would have been still less than two million at that point Uh and i did not know that you were going to hire david french at that point i don't know if you did either Uh but so that that i think orwell is the real one who's right here not either not you i think look i think both of us uh let's look Look, we both knew that we were also going to have a lot of nerdy policy wonk guests on this show, and then we're going to have some people who are going to be of more interest to people on this show. So uh, I think that we're both close enough to write, um, but I'm going to take credit for being actually literally right. <laughs> well, I guess it is your podcast. Um, okay, so you still have not watched Mandalorian? No, I'm not going to. You should. Um, well, I'm not going to. All right. So uh, thanks to Ramesh Panuru for coming in. Thanks to our listeners. Thanks to everybody who made the, who got us to the two million mark. Should we have a prediction about when we get to the three million mark? I'm um, no. I, there's too much I don't know. OK. I'm, so what was the, was the delta? What's the right word? What's the space between the one million and two million? It was like uh, I believe it was like early. So maybe September 4th, 5th to November 26th to 27th. Okay. So just just under three months. Yeah. Or like... Two and a half months. Ten, ten weeks, nine weeks. Yeah. Okay. So I'm not sure whether we're going to have some hiatus over the Christmas thing, so that could affect my numbers. I have to do this math very carefully. Um, I need my slide rule and my <laughs> my abacus. But... Um, Your goat entrails. Uh, goat entrails. Uh, um, eye of Newt. Um, I am going to say we're going to hit 3 million by the 1st of March. There you go. Okay. And, uh, and, 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 hey, look, advertisers should take note, um, about the, the, the growing, just surging popularity of this podcast. Um, um. And if you want to advertise, you should contact us. Uh, you can uh, drop us an email at theremnantpod at 
Gmail. We actually should come up with a dispatch email. What's the best email to do this? You just is it? The, what is our email address? You just said it. Keep, keep the remnant pod at gmail dot com. Uh huh. Okay, and we'll change that soon. Uh, but for now, that should work. And uh, thanks again to everybody uh, for listening. Thank you for signing up for, to everybody who um, was willing to start with the yearly subscriptions now. Rather than waiting for the paywall to go up, we are super grateful for that. That's a huge deal for us. Um, it gives us more maneuvering room. Um, so if, you, if you're inclined to do that, please go to thedispatch.com and subscribe. Uh, but you can still sign up for free for all our wares. And uh, I'll see you next time. I find this highly illogical. From far beyond the galaxies, I've journeyed to this place to study the behavior patterns of the human race and I find them highly illogical girl meets boy they fall in love she says he's everything she's dreamed of but when they get married before he's aware she changes his habits the way he combs his hair she changes him to someone he's never been and then complains he's not like other men Now, really, I find this most illogical. Uh, yeah, that's that's probably it. Okay, recording? Yep.